Welcome to the Strategy Driven Podcast, Making Change Work, a radical approach to change management, real leadership. On behalf of the entire Strategy Driven team, I would like to welcome you to this edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast, Making Change Work, a radical approach to change management, real leadership. The Strategy Driven Podcast focuses on the tools and techniques executives and managers can use to improve their organization's alignment and accountability to ultimately achieve superior results. These podcasts elaborate on the best practice and warning flag articles found on the Strategy Driven website at www.strategydriven.com. In this episode, Sharon Drew Morgan, developer of Buying Facilitation, shares with us her insights on effectively leading business change. In this, the sixth and final podcast of the Making Change Work series, we explore what true leadership is and how it is effectively applied throughout the change management process. And so now, without any further delays, let's get started. We are privileged to be joined by Sharon Drew Morgan, New York Times best-selling author and developer of a change management model based on buy-in that she's written about in her latest book, Dirty Little Secrets. Sharon Drew is the visionary thought leader behind Buying Facilitation, a decision facilitation model that focuses on helping buyers and those who would be impacted by the accompanying change manage their internal, unconscious, and behind-the-scenes issues that must be addressed before they purchase anything or buy in to the requested change. She has served many well-known companies, including KPMG, Unisys, IBM, Wachovia, and Bose. Sharon Drew, welcome back to the Strategy Driven Podcast. Hi, and this is our last one. This is. This completes our Making Change Work podcast series. And we've got the one topic that is the summation of everything else we've been talking about for the past weeks. That's right. And I think we've been teasing everybody because yeah. we have talked about this radical pr- approach to change management that we're going to talk about, which is really boiled down simply real leadership. So to start out, I want to just recap something from episode one, and that is just simply how we define change and how we've defined change through all of our podcasts. And that is, is we've said that change is really about buy-in. It's about those individuals and things that make up systems within an organization, buying in and accepting the requested change, and then allowing or accommodating for that change and changing their behaviors or the way things are, are structured. And so since we've kicked it off and we've said we're going to focus on on leadership for this particular podcast to wrap everything up, Sharon Drew, I was hoping that you would define for us what leadership is, and then I wanted to ask you something that I I challenge, I think, 
most all of the authors that talk about leadership, is what do you see as the difference between leadership and management? Oh, so that's a lot. I'm going to start off with a little analogy, um, a dancing analogy. Okay. I, um, I used to study the Argentine tango. It's a very difficult dance because the lead comes from the breath, the breath of the leader, and and there's only a few moves that you make, and the rest of it is all in the interpretation. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't come from the leader shoving my body here or there, me responding. It comes from him breathing in a certain way, and I can tell from his breath what my legs are supposed to do. It's true. It's very difficult to answer. The definition of a leader in dancing, in, in Argentine tango, is the man opens the door, mm-hmm. the woman waltzes, dances, expresses her way through it, and then the man follows. So he provides the opening for the follower to be all she can be, and then he follows her. Mm-hmm. The expression in the tango is if you can tell that the man is leading well, he's a bad dancer because you're not supposed to even notice anything but the woman. Okay. And the leader's job is to make the woman shine and be all she can be. And when I've danced around the world, the first thing that a a partner, a man, does with me is he takes me around the dance floor twice and he tries different steps and he notes very carefully what I'm capable of and what I'm not. Now, if he leads me in a way that's too complex for my capability, I stumble. And if I stumble, it's because he's a bad leader. Okay. So they take me around the dance floor twice, and they get a feel and understanding of my capability. And the rest of the dance, they bring me to the edge of what I'm capable of and not one step over and yet create steps for me that I have the opportunity to go a little farther here or there or there wherever I'm most comfortable. And you're never supposed to notice a guy unless I look bad and then it's because he's bad. And if I've ever tripped or whatever, they cannot stop apologizing because they have led me wrong. I think that is a wonderful and powerful metaphor for what a leader is. I do, too. I really love that example. So a manager is responsible for the nuts and the bolts and getting things done on this date and that date and doing the hiring The manager is doing a job. Mm -hmm. Some managers are leaders. 
some managers aren't. You can be a leader if you're the head of a secretarial pool. It doesn't matter what your job function is, but anyone can be a leader so long as they help the followers find their level of excellence and become all they can be. What it takes is knowledge of the capability of each person and not asking them to go beyond that, although providing the capability and the function, functionality where it's possible. Mm-hmm. But also the trust and respect that whatever way they want to fulfill their uh, requested uh, job or, or whatever they're being asked to do to buy into, that they can fulfill that in their own way. One of the biggest problems I've seen with leaders, or what they, they, they call themselves leaders, I don't particularly find that they're leaders, is when they give people such total direction that people must comply. Mm-hmm. And then all you have is an automaton. You don't have a part of a system that's functioning optimally, and and they don't find their own excellence. But the biggest problem, the biggest, biggest, biggest problem, I can't say this enough, is that the follower has all this innate capability and possibility, and they are not being given the space to be all they can be. When I worked in my company in England, I had a very strange circumstance where I was running a company. I'd never run a company in my entire life. I had been a stockbroker. I was a social worker for years. I didn't know how to start up a business. Somebody gave me some money and gave me the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And what I did was I figured out that if I could hire really good people and teach them or give them the opportunity to create a company for themselves, then they would be all they could be within their parameters. Mm -hmm. So everyone that I hired, from from tech people to training people to sales people and my receptionist, who I have to tell you earned more than anybody because she took a percentage of everybody else's business, Everybody was running their own business, and to come to um, an interview with me, they had to bring a profit and loss statement as to what a job would look like paying themselves what they wanted to earn and making everybody a profit center, including the receptionist. Wow. Because I didn't know how to do it any different. Mm Mm-hmm. And what I said, and, and I didn't know the technology person's job. I was married to the, one of the head tech guys. I mean, I, I, mar- I started up this company, and then I hired my husband, who was the head tech guy, to work for me. And so what he did for me was he gave me a graph and a chart with holes so that when someone took a test, I could code it and grade it and know how well they did because I just had to put the overlay on it and see how many things I got right, how many things I got wrong. 
so I could I could evaluate anyone's technical skills just from this little thing that my husband gave me to do. And so I had everyone developing their own businesses, and I didn't know what the hell they were doing. I, 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 I had never been a training manager. I wasn't a techie, and we had 43 tech people that we hired. I didn't know these people's jobs. I didn't. Mm-hmm. But they did. Yeah. And the joke around the company, other than the fact that they called me Sharon Drew Blood, that was my nickname. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I was in England, what can I say? Was they were always trying to get me to say, we're doing what? <laughs> <laughs> then they'd go, she said it! She said it! Yay, she said it! And I mean, I'd be walking down the hall, and I'd say, "Harold, I haven't seen you for weeks. Where have you been?" And he would say, "Well, I decided that we needed an extra thousand square feet of space, so I've been looking around for the right tra- uh, training um, building, and uh, I just signed the papers on it." <laughs> to which I replied, "We're doing what?" <laughs> <laughs> they each had their own companies. And I I told everybody, I'm not going to give you vacation time. You're tired. You're an adult. Take time off. And then I hired a make-nice guy. Mm -hmm. And in 1985, paying somebody 100,000 pounds, which was $200,000 at the time. Now it's $50,000, but then it was $200,000 was really an enormous sum of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I said to this guy, his name was John, I said, John, I don't care if you take off 360 days a year. I am not going to watch your time. Here's your job. Number one, all 43 tech guys have to be happy. Their teams have to be happy. We were outsourcing technical people and doing technical training. Mm-hmm. So all of the all of the teams have to be happy, and the guys have to be happy. My clients have to be happy with them on the team. They have to be successful. Their coding has to be good, and any coding problems, any technical glitches, anything that crashes at eleven o'clock on a Saturday night, it's all yours. But all the forty-three people, and there were maybe fifteen sites at a time. Every code was his responsibility. Period. Mm-hmm. Every relationship was his responsibility, every person being happy, and every client being happy was his responsibility. I said, I do not want to get a single solitary call with a problem because I'm going to grow this business. So everyone did. And my receptionist had us write pages of what was going on in our accounts and with relationships with each other so that she didn't have to deal with the crap at the front end, at the front of the place. Mm -hmm. Sure. As a result, when any phone rang anywhere, whoever picked it up knew everything that was going on. Our clients got the best service, and I charged two times what anyone else in the field did, double. We had a 42% net profit, 42% net profit. And of the five groups in uh, in this umbrella that we were working with, Mm-hmm. My company brought in 142% of the profit of the whole of the group of five of us. Wow. Okay. Now, and I didn't know what I was doing, but I didn't know what I was doing. 
But and we, we doubled every year. We doubled in business every year. And in a recession like now, in three and a half years, we were bringing in $5 million a year. Mm-hmm. And, and starting up in a recession like this, with a person like me not knowing what she was doing from scratch. I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I had the capability of allowing everyone to be all they could be. And I could never get them to take vacation. Mm-hmm. I had to call their wives and say, keep them home. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because it was their own company. Why would they want to take time off? Sure. I had to make them take time off. So what ended up happening was I was, in retrospect, I didn't realize at the time, at the time I thought I was just an idiot, I was a, a great leader, apparently, and they were bought into their job, and what we all had was the same series of beliefs and criteria around who we were. Mm-hmm. So we were integrity. What does integrity look, sound, act, and taste like? We were service. For Christmas every year, I sent out T-shirts to people that said quality guaranteed. So everyone had T-shirts that said quality guaranteed. So we were quality. And then we had to figure out what that looked like. So every job that we did had to manage those criteria, and everyone bought into it. And when I would hire anybody, I would say, here's what we're doing. Here's our beliefs. Here's our values. Can you buy in? Mm -hmm. So my business doubled every year. And I didn't do anything. I mean, I did. But I did what I did well, and everyone did what they did well. Sure. And they were empowered to do that. And they were empowered to do that. So I think that's a pretty good understanding for everybody of what I believe leadership and buy-in is. Well, Sharon Drew, since we're talking about empowering folks to do something, I want to ask you what you see as the difference between power and force (laughs) when it comes to leadership. Okay. Force is when you push something and you push someone to do what you want them to do Mm -hmm. in the way you want it done. So they have very little room outside of that to be who they are and give you their best. That's the thing that we miss the most when we're not good leaders. We miss the input from the receptionist who we would never think could run the whole damn company. Mm-hmm. Which she did. She was. We, we, nobody messed with, with her. Nobody. Nobody messed with her. Power is when you can create the structure, the space, the nest for everyone to feel safe enough to be all they can be, and give you the best. Now, if these people were able to handle stress and total creativity, they'd be entrepreneurs. So the fact that they're working in a company means that they can tolerate X amount, not Y amount. Okay. Mm -hmm. So to give them the structure, the space, the external rules, and then give them a little nudge. There was a company, I think I told you about this, one of the other ones, um, I, I think it's the container store. Uh, I, I interviewed the um, the uh, CEO of the, of the container store once, and he was talking about how he 
had people make mistakes and let them live with them, and nobody caught them on their way down. Mm. And they had to deal with the political issues and the relationship issues and the money issues. And even though, and, and everyone had a mentor. And if they didn't discuss it appropriately with the mentor, the mentor didn't say anything. That was part of the rule. That was part of the structure inherent in the company in terms of creating leadership, that everyone was a leader, that everyone in the company was a leader. And they'd watch while this person was making this horrific mistake. He said, we've allowed up to a $2 million mistake. He said, after $2 million, he said, I'd get a little itchy, he said. <laughs> but he said, the people that make the biggest mistakes learn the most, and they're the ones that rise the fastest. Because once you make a mistake like that, that hurts and harms and, and gives not the best of you, but the worst of you and everybody else, he said, not only do you never make that mistake again, but you make sure nobody else does through your leadership. So for me, that's power. Enabling someone to be all they can be, bring their excellence, know when it's time to step back, let people make their mistakes, and find your way. If, if, if we didn't let our children fall when they were learning to walk, we'd still be running after them when they were 40 years old. Sure. we stand behind them. And they think they're going on their own, and then they fall and figure out how to pick themselves up. That's how you learn. And people are afraid to do that in the company because there's always money attached to it. And so they force the people to do what they want them to do and don't empower them. Okay. Now, Sharon Drew, shifting over a little bit more toward change and change management, what do you find are the reason or reasons for change implementations to go south, that they're unsuccessful? So we can use still some of this leadership and buy-in and power as well. Mm-hmm. What happens is someone from management, and I'm not going to say a leader because it's usually a manager, mm-hmm. says, I want this, even if it's a C-level person, they're a manager, sorry. Sure. They say, I want this done, and here's how I want you to do it. So everyone either has to conform or get out, mm-hmm. and they're not necessarily buying in to the underlying beliefs and the underlying um, the underlying vision, because the yeah. manager is keeping the vision and telling people what to do. So you get people doing a piece of what they're capable of doing. They're not giving you your, their full creativity. And then they start getting resentful. Not only that, you're asking them to change their job. You're asking them to show up on a daily basis with a, a different um, social structure around them. So the people they've sat with, the people they have coffee with, the people they, they have managed, everything shifts. So there's people that are resentful and angry and annoyed, and they might not even be conscious about it, and they just might start sabotaging stuff. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. one, one of the numbers that I read a lot is that, I think I've said this before, for every dollar spent on a change, $5 are spent on fixing the problems that the change brings. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a ridiculous, ridiculous number. Oh, yeah. So instead of trusting that people can do it well and trusting that they're going to do it well their way, not your way, 
and giving them appropriate parameters without scrunching up their creativity, will it end up looking the way you want it to look? Well, no. Will it end up functioning the way you want it to function ultimately? Yes. But it will take a few different paths and a few different routes. Mm-hmm. And and you will get people who have been bought into this, who have bought into this, who are enabled and empowered and creative, who will own their new jobs and create something even better every day and be happy to show up early every day because you're empowering them and you're buying in. We're so busy at the top end trying to make sure we get what our limited vision is mm-hmm. that we don't yeah. realize what's possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if I was to sum that up, really what it sounds like is would we try to manage change when we stick to that nuts and bolts, use force to drive people to do it our way, when we withhold the vision, that's when we have failures in that's implementing right. change. Versus enabling change or empowering yeah. change. Right. So we want to be leaders, we want to inspire, to share the vision, to be accepting of other folks' input and the way they might do it so that we ultimately get the change we want, though it might not look exactly like we had originally well, thought it Well, you're forgetting or... one little piece. Okay. It's, 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 it's still an active process. So it's not even sitting back so much as creating the parameters. Mm. So we might say something like, okay, folks, I'm thinking that we need um, a more robust customer service um, capability. Why don't you all go back to your desks for a week and think about what that would look like. And then when you think about what that would look like, also have a think about the different kinds of job functions that would need to do that and the different kinds of technology that would need to do that. Have a think. And let's meet again next week and get some input and let's start putting some ideas down. Yeah, that sounds like you're really driving the buy-in to occur before you even implement the change project. That's right, because otherwise you're doing it backwards. Otherwise, you're a solution looking for a problem rather than a problem looking for a solution. Okay. So how does that differ from the traditional change management approach? Well, as I, I just think I said, the traditional change management approach is somebody comes from the top down and says, um, we need to change this. Joe, you do this. Mary, you do this. And have your team do this. And then you meet with the separate teams. And then you tell them what they're all going to be doing and what it's going to look like and then uh, give them some training around the new stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then we spend uh, a lot of time with what we think is logical communications justifying why they should like the change that we've now just And dictated. we can't imagine how stupid they are because they don't. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Now, Sharon Drew, one of the things that I see is folks struggling with finding the point in time that they've actually achieved the change desired such that the organization's not going to revert back 
to the old way of doing business. So that not only are people buying in, but now the change has taken hold. And, and the organization has truly achieved whatever difference in performance or difference in the way of doing business that they were seeking to, to achieve. What are the signs a leader should look for to see that they've actually accomplished this change, that they won't see an organization revert back to the way it Well, first of all, um, you won't see people being sick. <laughs> okay. One of, the, one of the early signs that there's a, a, a buy-in problem uh, is when people start taking a lot of time off and they have sick days and they get sick and they don't feel good and they don't want to come in. And, um, so you will not have a dip in attendance, first of all. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you won't have management problems, so you won't have uh, personality clashes and people being fired and HR being called all the time. Mm-hmm. Not only that, you will then be um, growing in unusual and new ways, and the biggest fight that occurs is when the manager is trying to get more money for somebody because they've done such a good job. And the manager is constantly at the budget group or the HR group saying, no, 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 we need a new incentive for this guy because he did this and this and this. And that's the fight that they have, not to get rid of somebody, but to find a new job description or find extra money. So you've got growing problems rather than fire, fire sales, rather than putting out the fire. Sure, sure. And, and and when you were talking about people being sick and absentee problems, I can see that. Not only can I see it, I've experienced that. I've even experienced people taking early retirement right. because they just say flat out, I'm not going to accept this change, so I'll just retire. I, I think I might have told this story in one of the other um, podcasts, but I had a client who ended up in a mental hospital. Did I tell you that story? No, we haven't talked about this. That... Um, Norm, I shouldn't tell you his whole name, but that. Um, we were working together on bringing buying facilitation into a very well-known, famous um, temp agency. Mm-hmm. And um, he was here, and we were studying and working, and he was learning to, to do this. And he gets a note uh, from um, the daughter of the owner, who had just apparently taken over part of his uh, people who were over him but hadn't told him. He didn't know about this. And she said, we decided to use spin selling rather than buying facilitation, so why don't you just take the next plane home? Wow. So she went over her head. She decided what he was going to do. She took away all of his empowerment and his plans without any any respect around what he's been doing and what we've been doing for six months and so forth. Mm -hmm. And the next thing I knew, this is a true story, and it's a terrible story. Um, he was supposed to get back to me, and he didn't. And I, I finally, and I, I, he, he, nobody was answering his phone. I couldn't imagine what was going on. So I had the business card of his brother who was um, in a jug band because I wanted to buy the CD, so he gave me his brother's card. Mm-hmm. And I called the brother, and he said, you didn't know he's been in the mental institution with severe, severe depression, doing shock therapy. I mean, that's the worst story I could even think of. 
Yeah. They took. They just totally took away because he was a visionary, and he, they took away everything from him. Wow. One of the sad. One of the sadder pieces of that, which yeah. I feel a little bit embarrassed about, was when he got out. He was uh, so so many meds, and he called me for a job, and he he wasn't even sane. I couldn't even think of hiring him. Wow. So I'm sure that's really an extreme. I'm sure it's an extreme. Yeah. But but I wonder how many other stories there are like that where people are um, separated from their belief and their job and in, in themselves and their heart and their wanting to do something better for the world, for even for the company, and to have it taken away. Yeah. Well, I, I can imagine it happens every day. I would bet. Yeah, certainly. Now, Sharon Drew, I did want to ask you one more question. And when I look at change leaders or, or leaders of, of any type, no one is successful 100% of the time. What should a change leader do if he or she feels the organization isn't accepting the change, that the change they're trying to implement is going to fail? So that they can already tell that it's going to be a failure? Yeah. They're into their project. Uh, maybe they made some mistakes at the beginning, or maybe they thought they had the buy-in at the beginning, but they misread some folks or something, and, and now it's starting to go south, and they, they see the failure as being imminent. Well, what I would do, which may not be what everybody else would do, but what I would do is I'd call all the people in the company, whether even if it's a big company. I mean, of course, we couldn't do that when Carly Fiorina was going through that the bad stuff at HP, mm-hmm. although she did have people working for her that did something similar. Her mm-hmm. team, by the way, her cultural change team, when they were going through their merger, um, they were trained by me in terms of um, learning how to collaborate together and make decisions together. So they were smart oh. enough. To, yeah, it was really kind of cool. Um, you have to get the team together and say, we're failing, what do we do? And you have to get them to figure out how to disentangle and disengage, change, or try something new. Because, again, if it's top-down, you're going to end up losing everybody mm-hmm. and salvaging nothing, whereas if you can all sit down together or have focus group meetings or small meetings in departments, and say, this is failing, this isn't working, what, it, what what can we do from our end to salvage a piece of this so that it doesn't all go south? That's what I would do. Now, again, I, I mean, you ask, I, I'm a hammer looking for a nail all the time. I'm always looking for ways to empower each other, to collaborate, and I have a deep belief that uh, the greater good will prevail when everyone puts their heads and hearts together Mm-hmm. and serve each other. Sure. Well, and, and what I like about that solution, too, to me it's, you know, the the failure is simply another problem that needs to be overcome. That's right. And so we start back at the beginning. We engage the workforce. We achieve the buy-in for the new solution. The solution now is just simply to the problem of not having the buy-in from before, and then we move forward as though it was just another change. Right. Well, I recently created something uh, on my uh, NewSouthParadigm.com site, mm-hmm. uh, a little um, 
something to sell that people I thought people would want, and I spent a lot of time and energy and money creating this, and not one single solitary person bought it, not one. And people had said, oh, we don't want the big thing. We want little $100 things so we can just buy little bits and if we put them all together, I don't care if it pays, if it costs more than your big thing, but I want one little piece at a time. And I heard this over, so I created a little, little bit for them and nobody yeah. bought it. So I went around to, to everybody saying, what's wrong with this page? What have I done wrong? What do you hate about this page? What would stop you from buying something? From here, what what would you need to see here so that it would work for you? And so I gave, I empowered everyone. I probably sent it to twenty five people, and I got wildly disparate responses. But there were four or five that everyone said, and so I changed it because I didn't know what to do, and I trusted the greater good. But and, and in that situation, I empowered everybody I knew, and I was a leader, and gave everyone their capability. And then I sent everybody one of the one of the things as a gift to say, you know, to help for helping me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a great example. Did I, I hope your sales went up? They did. Oh, people started buying them because I, 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 there were 13 of them, and I had this whole list of 13. People said, oh, my God, it's too much. Just give me five. Just give me five. Mm-hmm. So I did four or five, and then I took everything else and put it in little bundles. Okay. So, But I did that because everyone, I would never have thought of that myself. I, I, I'm, pretty, uh, I'm pretty stubborn, but I really do know what I don't know. And when I make a mistake, I try to correct it as soon as I can and trust that there are answers that I hadn't even thought of. That's the biggest problem when management uses force is that they're missing the brilliance of everybody else's ideas and growing in a way that, I mean, I was talking to somebody today, uh, actually it's a new client, and they have a push at the end of every quarter and they push and push and push and push and push and do deals and push and push and do deals and push and do deals. And every three months they have a month push. Mm-hmm. That's how they sell. And I said, my God, do you maintain these people afterwards? They said, no, there's a whole other unit that has to handle that. I said, how many of the people renege when they push like that? And he said, oh, we have a percentage. It's what, 30%? He said, yeah, is that right? <laughs> and I said, you realize how many that you're losing that would have bought besides that 30%? Because people buy based on their buying patterns, not your selling patterns. And if you're going to use a selling pattern that doesn't match, they're not going to want whatever it is you've got, whether they need it or not. It's the same with the leader. When a leader pushes their way, they'll get those people that are willing to follow, but there's, there's huge fallout amongst those who don't buy in, who don't feel respected, who don't uh, feel empowered, and it's just lose, lose, lose. And that's why that's why so many corporations are failing. Yes. Not because there's not good ideas here and there, but because the people are empowered to raise the company to excellence. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely correct. And they keep getting, well, they keep getting dictated to. They're not being empowered. They're being dictated to. And they're the frontline guys that can actually see what needs to be done to overcome the problem, to have the the breakthrough sale or the, the new offering that will be better accepted in the marketplace. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Well, Sharon Drew, I want to thank you, not only for the time you've shared with us this evening, but for all the time you've shared with us throughout our Making Change Work podcast series. And I really hope that our audience will not only listen to this episode, but they'll take the time to go back and listen to all six of our episodes because I know it'll help them be much more effective change leaders and to more positively be able to impact their companies through a congruent change process that they really do achieve that true buy-in that they need to be able to be successful. So thank you again for joining me. for this. And thank you. I had fun. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast. I would like to personally thank Sharon Drew Morgan for being with us today and sharing her insights on exercising effective leadership throughout the change management process. As always, we would appreciate receiving your feedback by email at podcast at strategydriven.com. If you enjoyed the show, please consider voting for us on Podcast Alley and visiting our website at www.strategydriven.com. You can find more information about Sharon Drew Morgan at www.buyingfacilitation.com. Until next time, so long.